This is an AMI podcast. Hey, Dave Brown here. If you enjoy this podcast portion of our show, remember you can watch it live every day at 9 a.m. Eastern time on AMI-tv. Welcome back to Now with Dave Brown on AMI-tv. I'm Alex Mike filling in for Dave Brown. It's Thursday, February 23rd, 2023. On the second hour of the show today, director Jake Simperman discusses his new documentary, Concrete Gridiron, about Buffalo's very first wheelchair football team. And Stephen Scott reports live from Vienna, Austria, with an update on the Zero Project Conference. But first, we are going to begin with regional news. We're going to Our Federal Emergency Preparedness Minister, Bill Blair, will be in Abbotsford today to, alongside his provincial counterpart, Bowen Ma, to announce di- disaster relief funding in response to the devastating flooding of November 20. Triggered flooding that damaged farmland, infrastructure, and forced thousands from their homes. The Insurance Bureau of Canada has estimated the cost of insured flood damage was at least $450 million, making it the most expensive disaster in the province history. Environment Canada says an Arctic air mass has settled over much of northern BC and the central interior, as well as regions along the Alberta boundary. Wind chill values nearing minus 40 are expected to ease later today in the Lake District, Chilcotin, and Prince George areas. But similar uh, temperatures with wind chills are expected to persist until tomorrow in the Peace River Valley region, along with Yoho National Park and Elk Valley. Wind chill of minus 20 or lower is expected to last throughout midday tomorrow along the northern and central coast. Over to the prairies now. The number of patients who have left emergency rooms in Winnipeg's largest hospital without being seen has about tripled in the last few years. A recent study, a report from Shared Health says that last year, more than one in four patients walked out of Winnipeg's Health Sciences Centre without being cared for. That compares to about 9% in 2018. A spokesperson for Doctors Manitoba says that the shortage of healthcare workers is a major problem, and the situation in the province is among the worst in Canada. The Saskatchewan Association of Rural Municipalities says it is waiting for the province to follow through on the Lake Diefenbunker Irrigation Project, a $4 billion project that could, um, that could more than double the amount of irrigated land in the province was announced by the Mo government in 2020. Association President Ray Orb says rural municipalities are waiting for an update on when the construction will actually begin. He says there are many unanswered questions and they need to know when the water will begin to flow. In Ontario, Ontario is exploring the idea of building large-scale nuclear plants to meet the increasing demand for electricity and phase out natural gas generation. Last year, a report by the independent electricity system operator found that the province could eliminate natural gas from the electricity system by 2050, but it would require about $400 billion in capital spending in more nuclear power plants. But the province has not committed to natural gas uh, moratorium or to building new nuclear facilities other than its small modular reactor plants. Environment Defense Ontario says it opposes new nuclear builds and calls the uh, the prospect absurd when there are cheaper alternatives like wind and solar power. Police in Ottawa are investigating an explosion last week that injured 12 people in a neighborhood east of the city. Residents say they woke up to the sound of a big bang that destroyed several homes under construction at an Orleans housing development that damaged other nearby houses. Police suspect it was arson that caused the explosion. Firefighters initially blamed it on a gas leak, then backtracked, saying that the cause is still under investigation. Over to the Atlantic region, Quebec Premier Francois Legault says he's ready to make adjustments to the Churchill Falls energy agreement between his province and Newfoundland and Labrador. The contract official end comes in 2041, but the provinces are starting to talk about future arrangements. 
speaking to reporters ahead of his two-day trip to St. John's. Legault says Quebec is open to paying more for the electricity generated from Churchill Falls in exchange for a very advantageous price for power when the existing agreement ends in 18 years. Newfoundland Premier Andrew Furry says that he expects the talks will be high level and describe them as discussions rather than negotiations. The New Brunswick government is changing its financial compensation for properties that repeatedly experience damage from similar climate-related disasters. Public Safety's Minister Chris Austin says that the changes, which take effect immediately, will increase to $200,000. A total a homeowner can claim for disasters such as flooding and coastal storm surges, up from the $160,000. He says that the changes also include increasing the maximum payout for structural damage and lowering the threshold at which governments would buy out homeowners affected by the floods. Austin says that the program is designed to help homeowners get out of harm's way and ensure that the taxpayer is not repeatedly paying for the same homes. That's it for your regional news. Now it's time to have Sports Chat with Brock Richardson. Okay, Brock. So you wanted you brought a couple of different topics that you wanted to talk about. The first one you wanted to talk about the CFL and their a slight problem with struggling teams and and uh, trying to find their place in the football landscape. What did you want to touch on? Yes. So let's start with the fact that. Uh, Grey Cup winner and uh, quarterback for the Toronto Argonauts, McLeod Bethel-Thompson decides to leave the CFL on a winning note and moves to the USFL. At this point, the Toronto Argonauts have Chad Kelly at quarterback. I don't necessarily feel that that's their long-term solution, especially with Bo Levi Mitchell lingering in Hamilton. I think that changes the East, uh, certainly. Um and I think they're going to want to look at another option outside of Chad Kelly. But it, it spawned the question to me, and I'm curious your thoughts. Why do you think the CFL uh, struggles so much in the East, for one? And secondarily, does Bo Levi Mitchell help move the needle in a more positive direction in the East? Yeah, so for me, the main thing I look at, it's I think the CFL just is having... A struggle overall. I I know the the Western Conference is very strong. You know, you, you got teams that are constantly competing. They're they're typically they're, it's it's not even a question. For years now, they they've been the, the stronger uh, side. But I I think as we mentioned, you know, he left for the USFL. I think that is something that's a very interesting development because normally in the past, you know, even three, four, or five years ago. If a CFL player was leaving, they were either going, they were, if they were good enough, they were going to go down to the NFL and, and try to get on with a team there. Or, you know, if that didn't work, maybe it was the Arena Football League. But now you have the USFL, you have the XFL. I think that the pools are really drying up for CFL uh, caliber talent and players. And because there's more options, they're probably going to generate more opportunity and a chance for more money and the games are slightly different and you can play back in the states i think a lot of especially american-born players they want to play football in the states and, and that's always going to be something that you're going to struggle with but i i think if we're if the eastern teams are you know more concerned and, and they really want to get more talent start develop homegrown talent start investing and start supporting football programs in the communities. I mean, Hamilton, uh, they McMaster is a, a good school for football there. You know, in Montreal, you got quite a number of, of uh, promising football uh, universities there. Same thing with Toronto. Like, you can build up your markets and really invest in it. So when time comes that they do well and they can make your team, you, you can reap the benefits from it. I, I don't think there's any real short-term solution to it, but that's my thoughts on it. What about you, Brock? Yeah, I think you're absolutely correct. I think what the CFL needs to do beyond developing homegrown talent is they need to draw more attention to the CFL from a perspective of the fans. They need to drive fans into the seats. They need to have people sitting in the seats, particularly in the East, because 
let's call a spade a spade, Alex. The U.S. and its football, as Dave always says, football is king in, in, in the United States, and there's no doubt about that. Football is not even close to king in Canada, apart from the Western teams. There are so many other sports that are available to them. So the first thing they need to do, I agree with you, is develop their homegrown talent, but then also find a way. And I don't even know sitting here right now telling you this as a solution. I don't even know how you would accomplish this because they've tried so many things. But find a way to get butts in the seats because if you don't do that, people aren't going to be that interested in watching it on television. You have to get people engaged with this this um, this product because it is a good product. And you just need to find a way to get them more engaged and want to do it. Apart from saying, we're basically just going to give tickets away, you know, for minimal amounts of money because you want to generate revenue. But in order to generate revenue, you have to have a good product on the field as well. Absolutely. Now, let's uh, shift gears a, a little bit. And, you know, we're, we're staying in the East. We're staying in Toronto, a team that wasn't. Uh, the focus, but we're changing sports. You wanted to touch on the Toronto Raptors. So let's dive into it, Brock. What's your thoughts on the Raptors? Uh, they have a real um, interesting part of their schedule. Right now they're in the uh, 10th spot in the Eastern Conference, which would get them into the play-in uh, round. And they have an interesting schedule coming up. They have the uh, New Orleans Pelicans, followed by the Chicago Chicago Bulls, and then the Washington Wizards. This is a part of the schedule where they need, if they're going to make a run, they need to do it now. They need to make a run now. They acquired Jakob Pirtle, and that was the only acquisition they did at the trade deadline because Masai Ujiri said, look, I, I believe in this team. I, I believe in my guys. Okay, now prove it to me. And the question really becomes, Alex, is the play-in or getting in sixth in the Eastern Conference, which would get you outside of the play-in and into the regular playoffs, is that enough for this organization? Or have they really missed an opportunity with their fan base? I think that the Raptors are kind of in this, like, middle purgatory. You know, they're, they're always going to be competitive. They they might make the, the lower seeding of the playoffs, but they're not going to beat Boston. They're not going to beat Milwaukee. They're not going to beat these tougher teams, these better teams. The skilled talent is not there. Now, we could see a resurgence. We could see, you know, certain players revitalize their career or or go and have career years. I don't I don't see this team really doing anything. I if they do make it into the playoffs and currently, you know, they're in they're in the play in tournament. If they make it into the a full-fledged playoffs, I, I foresee them maybe getting beaten that first round, regardless of who they're playing. I just, I think that they're going to be stuck. And I I think Messiah Jerry just didn't want to blow up the the team and start from scratch because there was still talent and skill there, some good young guys on the team. I think this year, yeah, it's fine. You, you made the playoffs. Okay, but what are you going to do next year? Who are you going to attract to this team help make them into a legitimate threat again because you know a lot of those teams that are on the top in the east they're gonna still be there they're still going to be competitive so how are you gonna match up and how are you gonna beat them because that's the only way especially in base uh, basketball you have to beat those top two teams and usually those are just loaded teams that it's very hard to beat and they're always favorites to win uh, the Larry O'Brien trophy. So it, it's going to be tough. What about you, Brock? Uh, quickly, we've got a couple minutes. Like, do you see this as being enough for the team and for the fan base that if they make the playoffs or play in tournament? No, to me, this is not enough for the fan base. You know, I've heard the argument that this gets Scotty Barnes, you know, another couple of playoff games, a, a playoff run. That's fine. I'm I'm good with developing talent you know, Gary Trent Jr., that's fine. I'm I'm all for that. But I just think we're beyond that as an organization. And what really scares me is that we're going to be in this 20-year middle ground of, you know, being a, a mediocre team. And will it be another 20-plus years before we win a championship? I hope not. But where we're trending at this moment and at the trade deadline, I do wonder if that's where we're sitting. Well, Brock, thank you so much. We're going to have to leave the conversation there as we we have a jam-packed second hour of the show. But thank you so much, and we'll chat with you tomorrow. All good.
Okay, so that was Brock Richardson at the sport desk. Now let's head back to Mike Ross at the weather desk. Thank you, Alex. This is your AMI National Weather Report from Environment Canada, beginning in Cornerbrook, Newfoundland. And we've got a mix of sun and cloud today with a high of minus 3, a wind chill of minus 13 this morning, minus 8 this afternoon. Charlottetown PEI has flurries, about 2 centimeters in total. The temperature falling to minus 17. The wind chill will be minus 27. St. John, New Brunswick will be mainly cloudy today with a high of minus 9 and a wind chill near minus 20. In Quebec City, you're getting between 2 and 4 centimeters of snow today with the temperature steady near minus 14 and a wind chill around minus 26. Toronto has periods of freezing drizzle or ice pellets. The high is plus 1. The wind chill this afternoon will be minus 3. To Sault Ste. Marie, Ontario, 5 to 10 centimeters of snow is headed your way. You've got a high of minus 9 today and a minus 14 wind chill this afternoon. Into Manitoba, Brandon has a mix of sun and cloud with a high of minus 19. The wind chill, minus 23 this afternoon. Frostbite is a risk there. Similar situation in Regina, Saskatchewan, where it'll be mainly cloudy today with a high of minus 22. The wind chill this afternoon, minus 30. Lethbridge, Alberta has periods of light snow, a high of minus 23, and a wind chill of minus 31. In Red Deer, periods of light snow with a high of minus 23 and the frostbite warning is in effect there as well as you've got a wind chill warning of minus 33 this afternoon. White House, or White Horse, pardon me, in Yukon is mainly sunny today with a high of minus 14, the wind chill minus 25. And finally into British Columbia where Kelowna will be cloudy with a high of minus 5, the wind chill there minus 10 this morning. Vancouver has clearing skies with a high of plus one and a wind chill of minus nine. And that is your National Weather Report from Environment Canada. Thank you very much, Mike. Uh, we'll be back right after this break. You're watching now with Dave Brown on AMI-tv. Welcome back to Now with Dave Brown on AMI-tv. This is always a treat for me. You know, I'm usually the one who's out in the field bringing in live reports, but today we're doing it a bit different. I'm at the desk because the Zero Project Conference began this week in Vienna, Austria. The annual conference examines disability inclusion and is sponsored by the United Nations. And Stephen Scott, who is one of the hosts of Double Tap, which airs weekdays at noon Eastern on AMI-audio, he is actually at the conference. He's joining us live from Vienna. Hello, Stephen. How are you doing? Hey, Alex. How are you? I'm doing very well. So uh, can you tell me a bit about what your initial uh, impressions have been of the conference so far? I'll tell you, Alex, this is an incredible conference. What an amazing opportunity to learn about the wonderful work that's being done around the world, Alex. That's the key point here, around the globe to promote disability inclusion, to promote, of course, from our perspective, technology and the joy that technology can bring so many people and the capability that technology offers, being highlighted on a national and international stage, national here in Austria, but of course, international around the world, being represented here at the United Nations are so many countries that are showcasing what they've been doing to try and just do their bit to include disabled people in their in their work and what they do and share those ideas uh, it's, it's a really inspiring event alex now you you mentioned technology like there's a number of different topics that are being covered at this event and through different panel discussions have you been able to check out any of those panel discussions what have you been hearing so far of course I've not, Alex, because I've been sitting here at my desk recording everything and anyone who will come anywhere near me. So, of course, I've not got into a session. <laughs> However, uh, you know, I have been hearing so many great things. And there are key themes that come out of every discussion. 
you know, one thing about disability is we don't all share the same experience because all disabilities are different and all experiences, even within subsets of disability, are different. So someone who, for example, is entirely blind may have a very different experience of someone who is low vision. But there are themes. There are themes that tie us all together, and that is education. That's employment. That's technology. And those are the discussions that are happening here. How can disabled people be included more in the workplace, actually get access to jobs, get access to the systems in jobs? You know, you go into a workplace and you have an internet system. How can that be more accessible? What can be done? And not only that, big tech companies are here talking about what they're doing as well. So, for example, Apple, Microsoft, Google are all represented here, plus others. And they're really showcasing what they're trying to do from their perspective, not just in their own companies, but also to work with other companies to make these systems more accessible so that more people can get access to employment, can get access to education, and of course, use that technology to the fullest so they can be empowered in their careers, in their education. Well, you mentioned all the uh, tech companies being there, but like these type of conferences also bring together scholars, activists, poly, uh, policy makers as well. Who are some of the, the the folks or or the companies that really have been standing out to you so far? And, you know, I have to say, I think that the great thing about this conference, and yes, there are, like you say, lots of big institutions here, lots of uh, academics are here, and lots of interesting people talking about their subject and their chosen research fields. But I think it's the individuals, Alex. That's what the Zero Project conference is all about. It's about those individuals that are making a difference. I spoke to a guy today who has developed an application that enables someone who is deaf to be able to upload a, a file, say a podcast or you know a piece of text or whatever it might be, actually upload that and then with an avatar through AI actually have that text made available to them with sign language. So they have an avatar that will turn what they're saying, what, what, we, what we're saying right now into sign language. I mean, that's incredible when you think about it, right? So it's that kind of work that is going on that's being highlighted here. And it's these little pockets of work that's going on around the world that's being shared. Because oftentimes what happens is the answer to a problem is out there. It's how do you find that information? And you know, you can Google it, but you may not get the answer. Whereas the Zero Project Conference, as I'm learning, because this is my first time here, and this is my first time really understanding how powerful this conference is in its 12th year, it's an incredible event that really does show what amazing work is going on out there and that sharing it is the key to success. Absolutely. And you talked about it. so many people are coming together there and you're, you're basically sticking a microphone in front of anyone who will come by your booth. So I, I'm I've got a microphone in my hand now, Alex. I'm, I'm, I'm pointing it to anybody who will, <laughs> you know, come near me. Exactly. So what has the general feeling been from the attendees who have been there so far? Inspired. Truthfully, inspired. And I think that everyone I've spoken to is going away with, you know, a resurgence, a, 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 an energized feeling that, you know, I can go back to where I come from with tangible ideas on how to make my business, my school, my education, my, my work, whatever it is, make it more accessible to more people. I had a wonderful conversation today with a TV channel who were looking to make their content more accessible. Now, who could they talk to about that kind of thing? Hmm, what about accessible media? That would be a good place, right? Um, well, yes, that's what they wanted to do. They wanted to come and talk to us about what we're doing here at AMI. And, you know, again, sharing just that knowledge of how AMI does what it does, making its content, its programming more accessible, integrated described video, all of the aspects of making the show's caption, all of that, just sharing that knowledge that was, I mean, pardon the pun, an eye-opener for them. And they loved that. You know, they loved that. They, they felt inspired by that. We talked about online and how they could make their content more accessible. Was their website accessible? And they told me that it was going through an audit at the moment. Excellent. You know, is your online content, when you put up a video, do you include a voice track so that's not just text on a screen? Someone who's blind can actually get involved in that and can actually know what's going on. It's just those little things people can do that can be, you know, make their content more inclusive and then draw in a bigger audience. At the end of the day, one thing that's been said a lot here, Alex, is that, you know, we as disabled people hold a lot of money in our pockets that we will give to companies, we'll spend money, but your products have to be accessible. Your content has to be accessible. Then we'll be interested. That's how it works.
Yeah, exactly. And if you're making the effort, you're making the intention to be at these types of conferences that are promoting accessibility and, and working with the disability community, you're more likely to get those customers because there's the awareness, there's the, uh, there is the representation in that community that you are there, you're working with them. So that's really key. Yeah. In terms of the rest of the conference, is there anything that you're looking forward to uh, still coming ahead that uh, you're, you're most excited to check out or, or hear from or, or someone you're willing, uh, excited to talk to? Well, interestingly, on Saturday's show coming up, we'll be talking to uh, Shani Dander, who is a, a British broadcaster, and she is uh, someone of short stature. She has brittle bone disease, and she talks about that. She talks about her challenges as someone who is uh, Indian uh, by heritage, but British by birth. She talks about the intersectionality of disability, race, gender, all of these things. When you start to mix it all up, it's a really interesting conversation. And uh, we're going to get, get quite frank, I will say, with uh, Shani on Saturday's Double Tap. So check that out. Uh, but personally, I'm looking forward to the big tech fair tomorrow. <laughs> There's a surprise. <laughs> we're going to talk technology and all the big tech companies. We don't know exactly what it is they're going to be talking about tomorrow. But certainly, most of it is going to be about the business of working together together. And that's a key thing here because, you know, when you think about Apple and you think about Google and you think about Microsoft, you think about competition, you think how they're always trying to get the customer off each other or the customers to move on to the next project or product. But actually, when it comes to accessibility, they really do work together. Tomorrow, we'll hopefully bring you more on that. That sounds great, Stephen. It's always a pleasure to chat with you. And I'm sure we're going to be finding out some more takeaways as uh, you you shared the experience on Double Tap and, and through uh, your conversations here on Now with Dave Brown. Thank you so much for chatting with us today from the conference. Yeah, we're here every day from the conference all week. Thank you, Alex, uh, for, uh, for talking to me. Really interesting today. Yeah, perfect. So that was Stephen Scott, who is one of the hosts of Double Tap, which airs weekdays and Saturdays at noon on Eastern on AMI-audio, and he was speaking to us from Vienna, Austria. And you can also follow Double Tap on Twitter at Double Tap On Air. So on tomorrow's show, uh, Juwita Gupta is going to be here, but this Thursday at 1.30 p.m. on The Pulse, she is going to be chatting with DeLorent Lamptey, who became inaugural Embark Scientist at Holland Bloorview Kids Rehab. That's The Pulse, Thursday, 1.30 p.m. Eastern on AMI-audio. And coming up next, it's roundtable chat time. Mike Ross is going to bring us the topic. You're watching Now with Dave Brown on AMI-tv. Welcome back to Now with Dave Brown on AMI-tv. It's roundtable time, so we're going to welcome Ian Ramya Muthan and Mike Ross. Hello, Ramya. Hello, Alex. And hello, Mike. Good to be back. Okay, Mike, you, you have a, another topic you wanted to uh, dig our claws into, so take it away. What's the topic? Yeah, there are a couple of uh, stories that have come out in the last few days or a couple of weeks. Uh, one in Ottawa about huge amounts, like I'm talking a couple of million dollars spent on severance packages at the National Gallery of Canada, and also a little bit of uh, controversy in Calgary where city council, there's some city councillors don't want to spend millions of dollars on artwork for city installations. And so it got me thinking about the importance of museums in our lives, and I wonder for the two of you, uh, what is uh, what's your favorite type of museum to visit, and why? Rami, I wanted you to start off. I think this is going to be a very obvious answer, but anything tactile, please. <laughs> I, I really enjoy art galleries and museums and art installations around the city. Um, the the most recent. Um, kind of example I can think of is going down to the distillery district and finding this like gigantic tactile peace sign with all the symbols or many, many uh, religious symbols and spiritual symbols and just symbols around the world being carved in. And that I spent like close to 45 minutes at that installation because I was so in awe that this whole thing was tactile. It was life-size. It was, uh, you could climb onto it. You can feel around. And I was getting to know 
symbols that I had only heard in concept or heard descriptions of or just hear by name. You know, this is the X symbol. But I had no idea what it actually looked like or felt like in detail until visiting this art installation. So I think that these kind of clicks happen so often every time that I get to have a touch tour or a tactile experience, which is why I appreciate them so much. Yeah, that's such a, uh, a important uh, style and way to experience, you know, just art and, and artifacts and different installations. Like, I, I've been able to do a couple uh, uh, touch tours and things like that, and I, I've enjoyed them. It, they've been really enlightening, but I also find it's like, well, you know, oftentimes at, at museums, you'll only get, you know, a fraction or very specific pieces that you'll really get to interact with. And and obviously, you, you know, for various reasons, there's those bigger ticket items, the, the more impressive, the more uh, well-known, um, mm -hmm. you know, artifacts or installations or pieces are, are relatively protected. So, you know, I, I would love to see more kind of, whether it's just even smaller scale or, or like models that you can touch or you can get involved with to, to really share that experience in an accessible tactile way. Uh, that said, for me, I, I always kind of flip-flop between natural history and civilization. I, I always love seeing, you know, the development of different ancient civilizations from, you know, the Mesopotamian era to Egyptian to Greek to Roman and and, and the the old Asian uh, developments of, of civilizations and just being in awe and wonder that we still have all these artifacts still around, that we're able to visit them, that we're able to find out what happened and how people lived and developed and, and, and improved on different things from like pottery and things like that through these different civilizations. That's always fascinating. But then also too, it's just the natural world always just leaves me with my jaw on the floor. Anytime I get to see a full scale dinosaur in a museum, I'm just, um, oh my goodness. <laughs> like, I, I don't want to leave. I would just want to stand here for like half an hour and stare and look at every single piece and wonder what it's like if it was living and breathing and moving still. So it's those are the ones that always get me. Mike, what about you? Yeah, I'm about, uh, you know, history. Um, and no matter what type of museum, uh, a lot of the history is going to drive my my interest and sort of pull me in. And I think a lot of that comes from the fact that when I was a kid, uh, I grew up next door to my grandparents' house. My grandfather was a World War II veteran. And we had the National uh, War Museum about five blocks uh, west of our house. So he and I would go there all the time. And it was really interesting because he and I sort of connected uh, on history and on his military service. So he would take me there a lot and just sort of run me through some of the experiences that he lived through. Um, but by showing me artifacts and, and, and showing me displays uh, from World War II and really sort of getting into some of the nitty gritty of how this works and how we use this piece of equipment and where we would have used this and where he would have gone through World War II and where he uh, spent time uh, fighting in in Europe. Um, so so that sort of fed my my interest in in history. And as I grew older, then that historical interest sort of translated into other uh, other forms of uh, of history, and and it certainly art is one. Uh, traveling through Europe and going to European mm -hmm. art galleries and museums, I mean, I just I love looking at at especially sculpture. I mean, I don't know why, but when we went to Italy a few years ago, I was just taken by all these amazing Italian uh, Renaissance era sculptures that uh, that were in some of the museums that we got to see. So, um, so yeah, I think history is is the one that sort of draws me in. And it doesn't really matter what kind of museum it is. It's the history that draws me to all types uh, of, uh, of museum. Well, there's, there's one museum that I think kind of ticks boxes for both of you guys. And it's one you probably have never heard of before. Uh, it's one I had the privilege of actually going in and visiting uh, for AMI this week a couple of years ago. It is the Ontario Regiment Museum in Oshawa, Ontario, where Ooh. it is literally a museum filled with tanks and other, 
like military style vehicles and as part of an experience there are certain days where you can go out and you can actually ride in a fully functioning world war ii tank or military vehicle so you get that tactile experience ramya you get to actually board and ride on a tank and they have a whole track that you can go into you feel the rumbling of the ground below you, the smell of the diesel and everything. And then, Mike, for you, you get to satisfy that that love and passion for old military history. It To me, it was something I, I never thought I would experience, and let alone, like, literally in Oshawa. You just go up a street and next to a residential area, and there's just, mm -hmm. like, a full garages full of tanks and other military vehicles. It's really, and really he, cool. And, and here's one for you, Alex, because just uh, south of there, about two blocks south of there, is the uh, Automotive Museum. Mm -hmm. And mm -hmm. it tells the history of the automobile in Canada. And, of course, because Oshawa and GM, General Motors, ha have a, such a long shared history, you can visit the Automotive Museum uh, on that uh, same street. It's a Simcoe Street in Oshawa that uh, you can go. And then a little further north of there, you can visit the estate that uh, belonged to the original head of General Motors. You can visit that. It's kind of neat. It's a it's an, a mansion that's been used in a lot of uh, TV shows, Hollywood movies. Uh, um, Billy Madison, for example, X-Men, they've used it. Bomb Girls on CBC used it. And it's used, you know, sort of as that uh, 1930s, 1940s style sort of mansion, uh, you know, early Canadian rich people living in, in this biggest state with the the huge manicured lawns and and the hedges and everything it's it's a beautiful spot so you're right right in that one little pocket of oshawa ontario there's a ton of things that you, that you can visit and a couple of great museums too so ramia i'll give you a final word what is a museum that you know you really enjoy but maybe people don't know about or it may be under the radar Oh, gosh, I'm terrible at remembering uh, these kind of things. But I will say, and because they're doing this tour this weekend uh, in Toronto, the Badashu Museum. Mm -hmm. Now, I didn't get to have any tactile experiences there. But when we went, it was a group of blind and low vision um, community members in Toronto several years ago. And we went with an audio describer. And that experience is just seared in my mind. First of all, it's such a unique place. Uh, and just the unique collection of shoes and footwear, the history, the geography, the description of the actual artifacts um, was absolutely interesting. And I, I have like zero to very little interest in fashion. So this was just fascinating to me. Oh, 100%. Like I have zero interest in fashion and I've been yeah. there numerous times and it's, it's always <laughs> impressive. So um, good. Mike, thank you so much for bringing this topic forward. We'll say goodbye to you now. Uh, Ramya, before we let you go, you got to let us know what's coming up on today's episode of Kelly and Ramya. Exactly. So myself and Danielle McLaughlin are hosting the show for you all. And we're talking to Mary Mamalidi. Mary Mamalidi has some upgrade your kitchen game techniques for us, some tools, some tips, all kinds of things that she's going to bring to us. And also we're talking March break with the Ontario Science Centre folks because that's around the corner, actually. It's really wild. Uh, but Victoria G is the researcher programmer there, and she's going to tell us what's going on during March break for you and your kids. Um, and... On our weekly roundtable, we're joined by friend of the show and avid listener of the show, but also avid audiobook listener, Catherine Vatcher, who is uh, going to be joining us to talk all kinds of topics. And I'm leading the roundtable, so we really don't know what's going to come up. <laughs> awesome. This sounds like a great episode, Ramya. Thank you so much. That will be 2 p.m. Eastern. You have yourself a wonderful day. You too, Alex. Okay, that was Ramya Amuth. And, and coming up next, director Jake Simperman discusses his new documentary, Concrete Gridiron, about Buffalo's very first wheelchair football team. You're watching Now with Dave Brown on AMI-tv. Welcome back to Now with Dave Brown on AMI-tv. I'm Alex Smythe, filling in for Dave. A new short documentary by PBS captures the story of Buffalo's very first wheelchair football team. Before we learn more about it, let's take a moment to view the trailer for Concrete Gridiron. Players from the greater Buffalo adaptive sports scrimmage with each other and the Cardinals in a parking lot. They are right outside the GEHA field, 
also known as the home of the Kansas City Chiefs football team. I was waiting. And then we were blessed with wheelchair football. Two players collide while catching a pass. This game means everything. We should be slamming, falling, sweating, bleeding, just to make it down that field. More players hit while catching passes. Let's go! Guys who are here every day are going to play. Guys who are working hard and showing commitment are going to play. This is brand new, and we're excited to be one of only nine cities across the country. No matter what, this right here is the first Buffalo wheelchair football team. Let's go, Buffalo! Let's go, Buffalo! Two players collide head-on, knocking one out of their chair. Concrete Gridiron. That was the trailer for Concrete Gridiron. Joining us now from Los Angeles to tell you more about it is director Jake Simperman. Good morning, Jake. How's it going? It's going wonderful. Thanks for having me. So, Jake, you have a history of directing films about different sports. Like, what was it about this story that appealed to you most? Yeah, I mean, for for me, it was the storytelling behind the characters and... Um, you know, the way that they were so candid and open about their experiences and how they could relay that to an audience that really resonated with me. Um, there are, you know, there are so many good stories on this team that it became difficult to decide which players can I focus on in a 22 minute span. What was your experience relationship like with wheelchair football before starting this documentary did you know it was even a thing before you started absolutely not i mean i i came into this um completely clueless quite frankly um and i you know so long story short i ran into my old high school football coach um at a music festival festival of all places um i thought he was retired from coaching football and when I heard about this opportunity that he was he was just had been given, um, I kind of just immediately was like, Coach, I think we need to like, can I just show up with a camera? I don't, you know, and they were so open and welcoming. And I didn't know anything about the sport. And quite frankly, I didn't know much about adaptive sports at all. So I was just learning on the fly. And what aspect of this team will audiences get to take in as part of this documentary? Yeah, I mean, I think the, a really cool aspect is that you're seeing some athletes who are extremely competitive, experienced athletes. Um, that's Adam Page right there who has three Paralympic gold medals. But you're also seeing athletes who are just playing sports for the first time, and they're playing together on the same team. So it's really interesting to see them um, kind of work with each other and teach each other and bond over the connection that is athletics. And so as we, we heard and saw in the trailer that they were playing in the parking lot outside the Kansas City Chiefs home stadium, how is wheelchair football played? And does it share a lot of the same rules as your traditional uh, American football? Yeah. Um, so obviously it's, it's touch football. Um, and there's no, there's no special teams. Um, but there are, are tons of similarities. You can pass, you can run. Um, it is quite physical as you've seen. Um, there are some nuances of the game that are still, you know, this is a new league, right? So there are some nuances that I think are being kind of ironed out every single year, but the fact that this happened um, for the first year and was so successful it really bodes well for the future of uh, this sport. In terms of covering parasport itself, like how did you adapt your style to to really showcase and highlight the the intensity, the passion, the nuance of playing parasport? opposed to an, uh, an traditional or able-bodied sport because there, there's those subtle differences and it's it's how you capture those moments. So I'm curious as a director, how you manage to do that? Yeah, I mean, first of all, I, I wanted to show wheelchair football as we would present any other sport with, you know, really, um, you know, high energy, dramatic angles and high impact 
collisions. You know, I, w- I wanted people to realize because when you're when you're down there and you're watching these games, like it's loud because it's just, it's metal crashing into metal. Um, so I wanted to capture that, and then you know, from the s- storytelling aspect, like the thing that made this different was the great access that I was given by the team and by the coaches to everything. And I, you know, I've worked for other sports leagues and entities and that's generally not the case. So I, I just wanted to be a fly on the wall essentially and, and capture um, every part of their journey from the airport to loading up the vans to practices. I mean, that to me um, being let into that circle was the best part of the film, I think. And as part of capturing that, you you met so many of the the athletes, the players, and a lot of them, you know, did not really have uh, a sport background or, or played a lot of sports, but they were drawn in by football and being able to play football. Why is it? What what is it about football that really drew them in? You know, and it, it doesn't have to be football, but first of all, you know, Buffalo is a is a football town and a hockey town, but this is the first time that most of these athletes have been given the opportunity to play. So I think sports just provide a common bond and a united goal that can bring people together um, from all over Western New York with a wide range of adaptive needs. So um, then that's what sports do. And that's what they give us the opportunity to do. Um, So I, I think that, you know, this has made a huge impact in the community. Can you talk a bit about the overall presence and uh, growth and development of the sport in America? Like, how many teams are there currently? Like, we were seeing in, in the documentary, there was teams from Cleveland, from Arizona. You're, you were following the team from Buffalo. Like, how many teams and how widespread is it across the country? Yeah, so the first year, 2021, there was nine teams. And I believe that has expanded. Um, I don't want to don't want to say a number, but I think there's at, there's at least 12 teams now. So this is something that is picking up a lot of steam. And, you know, the more teams that get on board, the, the less there has to be travel, the more, you know, local tournaments there can be. So this is something that we're, we're really just starting to see the tip of the iceberg of. And it's really exciting to kind of be on the ground floor and and watch this Buffalo team grow and watch them succeed because, uh, you know, trust me, they they want to win and they want to get better. And, you know, that's a priority for them, you know, because they're they're representing their communities and, um, you know, they're they're taking it serious. You mentioned before that Buffalo is a football town. I mean, you got the Bills Mafia. They're they're notoriously notorious or infamous, uh, depending on the, uh, the term you want to use for them. But why why was this Buffalo team the the real team that you wanted to follow and, and you wanted to capture and and how are they kind of indicative of the sport across the country and and uh, beyond if it's uh, uh, has presence outside of the U.S. You know, for me, like this team, and it's kind of cliche, but they this is a true group of underdogs. I mean, there has there was only two players on there that had ever played organized sports before, um, so you're just watching people learn sports and learn what it means to them um, on the fly. So to me, that was really incredible. And there's some great teams all across the country um, that might have more resources or more players, but um, there's, I would be surprised if there's a team that had more heart or, um, you know, drive because they're, they're, these guys are starting with very little experience. And by the end of the first season, I mean, they're incredibly skilled at catching and blocking um, and all the aspects of football that they had never done before. In terms of your experience covering this sport, covering this team, what are you going to take away with you after this experience of making this documentary? Well, I have a lot more friends now in, in the adaptive sports community, um, which is honestly, I think, the biggest reward. Um, and it's just been it's just been fantastic learning and being just kind of a bystander to this whole thing. And um, you know, for me, I, I think I'll also take away is the way that all these players and athletes are are able to face their challenges and and it, with such a like with a smile on their face and with humor. 
And to me, like that, those are kind of the moments, you know, there's so many funny, it's a serious film, but there are so many funny moments during the making of this thing that I'll never forget because these, these guys are just like, they have amazing positive energy. Um, and I'll always remember that for sure. And so Jake, what are you up to next and where can we go to follow your work? Sure. Um, yeah, my website is jsimperman.com. Um, I've got I've got an Instagram too. I think it's uh, at jjsimp, C-I-M-P. Um, I'm working on a feature-length documentary right now. Um, it's about hockey, and that's kind of all I'll reveal at the moment. But I'm hoping to do more in the adaptive sports community, and I think when it comes to football, there is a lot of potential here and you're probably going to start seeing more content in that space. And I, I think that's great. Uh, Jake, you know, this is, was such a exciting uh, documentary. I, I loved it. I, I've, I've done a number of uh, different uh, uh, film projects with uh, Adaptive and Parasport. And so being able to see it on uh, PBS and uh, we'll be, we're definitely going to uh, have the link up on our website. It's, it's remarkable. Everyone should check it out. Thank you so much for taking the time to chat about this and, and make this project. It, it was really fascinating. Of course. Pleasure's all mine, and uh, I'd love to do it again sometime. Great. That was Jake Simperman, the director and filmmaker behind Concrete Gridiron. The short documentary is available to stream with closed captioning on PBS's website. And as I mentioned, we'll have a link to that in our blog below. So that is the end of our program. I just want to say, you know, coming up tomorrow, we're going to be having our, our news panel. We got Michelle McQuig, we got Joita Gupta, who are going to be joining me to recap the biggest news stories of the week as we dissect into that. And I, I just want to thank our guest today. We had Richie Lefebvre, uh, who brought a really unique device to, to really highlight accessibility with Script Talk. We had Jake Simperman, you just heard from director of Concrete Gridiron, phenomenal documentary. Amy Amanti reviewing You People. We had Stephen Scott live from Vienna. And we had Blaine Deusser giving us some community reports. I mean, overall, this was such a phenomenal show. So that's now with Dave Brown, 9 a.m. Eastern on AMI-TV. I'm Alex Mice, still filling in for Dave for one more day, so be sure to Join me tomorrow on Friday as we have another fun-filled day. Thank you so much for watching. Take care. Dave Brown here. If you enjoy this podcast portion of our show, remember you can watch it live every day at 9 a.m. Eastern Time on AMI-tv. Join me every couple weeks for the Outdoors with Lawrence Gunther podcast, where we learn about outdoor tech and tips. Plus, we look at news affecting the environment. AMI's Outdoors with Lawrence Gunther is available from your favorite podcast provider.